Hello, and welcome to a very special Not A Cast podcast, a podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work-related reasons. Soon as he is back, which we think is going to be in late July or early August, we'll be resuming the regular weekly podcast with A Storm of Swords. Until then, I'll be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts of my own. And I'm very happy to welcome back my guest for this week, Luke from the We're Not So Different podcast. Thanks so much for coming on, buddy. Hey, thank you for having me once again. I'm glad to be back. And we're going to be talking about one of our favorite characters for both of us in this universe, Blood Raven. Brynden River is better known as mm-hmm. Blood Raven. A, a fascinating yeah. character that connects a, a lot of different parts of the story. And so, accordingly, there's a lot of different ways to, to talk about him. Even though, as, as you were saying uh, before we started recording, in terms of the main series, he pops up in like one chapter in the <laughs> yeah. most recent book for a little bit. And yet, there's still a ton to get into. Yeah, he's one of my favorites, and uh, he, no, he is—he's my favorite character in the series. I'm really excited to be here. Really excited to talk about it because I like the way he connects to everything, and uh, yeah, I like uh, immoral tree wizards. <laughs> Who amongst us does not? And that's the other great thing about exactly. Blood Raven is like he's one of those characters like uh, like Beric Dondarrion, and they're kind of similar in a lot of ways, actually. That. There, there's a lot of like, lot to intellectually to get into and wonder about in theories, but they're also just so viscerally awesome. Like Beric's just mm-hmm. this awesome zombie door with this fire sword, and Blood Raven's mm-hmm. an immortal tree wizard, and you can see George just tapping into the stuff that made his little eyes grow big when he was a kid reading reading comic books and yeah. fantasy stories for the first time. And Blood Raven's one of those characters that that gets that across uh, so so well. So to, to to set things off, let's talk a bit about the, the basics of Brynden Rivers as a character. And I think a good place to start is uh, George's instructions to the artist Amoka when they, they were drawing a lot of the, the great bastards, as they're known this generation, the Targaryens. And George kind of went into detail about what they look like and along the way kind of revealed some of what he thinks about their character. So this is what George had to say about Brynden Bloodraven Rivers. The natural son of King Aegon IV by his sixth mistress, Lady Melissa Mel- Missy Blackwood, Brynden Rivers is an albino, with milk-white skin and white hair worn long. His eye is red, the one he still has, the right. At the Battle of the Redgrass Field, his left eye was put out by bitter steel when they dueled. He seldom wears an eye patch, but prefers to display his scar and empty socket to the world. On the right side of his face, over his throat and extending up to his cheek, he has the red wine-stained birthmark from which he gets his name. The birthmark is said to look somewhat like a raven drawn in blood. However, the likeness is hardly exact. Dunk thinks the birthmark... Just a splotch. It is more a suggestion of a raven shape, like a Rorschach inkblot. His colors are, quote, scarlet and smoke. Smoke being a sort of dark gray, streaked and mottled with black. Because his skin is very sensitive to the rays of the sun, he frequently goes about cloaked and hooded. His sigil is a white dragon, one-headed with red eyes. He is a shade under six feet tall and very thin, gaunt with a grim, unforbidding aspect and a sinister reputation as a sorcerer and spymaster. Although he bears the Valyrian blade, Dark Sister, that once belonged to Aegon's Visenya, that is uh, the queen of Aegon the Conqueror, the first uh, Targaryen to rule Westeros, his favorite weapon is a tall, bone-white weirwood longbow. He is an expert bowman. His longbow is weirwood and should be white. So that really sets up this this uh, image of Bloodraven. And the image is very strong. This is a guy who's known for what he looks like, for, for better or worse. He stands mm. out in Westeros for, for being an albino and for having that birthmark. I really like, though, what George says, and I think this is representative that 
that the birthmark doesn't really objectively look like a raven. That's just kind of what people project mm-hmm. into it because of his reputation. Really, it's just a birthmark. It's like a Rorschach plot, he, he says. And that's, that's what Blood Raven ends up becoming, is a very ambiguous character that a lot of people have a lot of different information on and think a lot mm-hmm. of different things about. I think the Rorschach aspect uh, that George calls attention to is very interesting as well. Uh, something that I really like about uh, Blood Raven is that he he has a Valyrian steel sword, like the cool, like the coolest sword mm-hmm. that that there is, the coolest we- one of one of these awesome weapons. But he has this like weirwood longbow, and that to me is just like it's a an almost singular thing in the universe in the universe of Song of Ice and Fire is just this like tall uh weirwood longbow and then you know and then he's obviously going to uh to meld with the weirwood later and I always just it's very evocative to me. I agree. I love that. It's that 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 kind of sinister aspect that he can you know he can duel you with a sword but also hit you from a distance maybe when you don't even know he's there when he's hidden he's got that mm-hmm. that, that cloak and hood he's got the reputation as a sorcerer those colors of, of of scarlet and smoke which is similar to you know black and red are the Targaryen colors but smoke suggests something like more like evanescent and more more mm-hmm. mysterious than your usual breed of Targaryen. And a lot of that has yeah. to do potentially with the fact that he has Blackwood blood. And the Blackwoods are a family in the Riverlands, but they are originally from the north. And they keep the old gods. Jamie spends some time with the Blackwoods in A Dance with Dragons. He sees their weirwood tree. It's remarked that they're kind of different from the rest of the people in the Riverlands. And so this is potentially where Blood Raven's connection to the old gods, we'll get into more later, potentially where that comes from and why he has an attraction to things like weirwoods, why he would have a longbow made of weirwood and later work himself into the weirwood. Part of what makes him an interesting character is he has that Targaryen blood, but also that first man blood. And this is mm-hmm. one of one of several occasions where that happens. It's clearly an important part of the story. I mean, just look at the title of the story, Song of Ice and Fire. Clearly, George is interested in when those two kind of things come together. And Blood Raven's a, a major example of it uh, in the backstory. He's always moving in the background, and he's got this very like, uh, um, like a like a master manipulator type thing mm-hmm. going on. But at the same time, he also um, he he's he's like moving in this world, and the people don't seem to really like him that much. Like I don't know that anyone outside of like Shira Seastar and maybe a few others, like his mom, <laughs> really like him that much. Um, but he doesn't really seem to care and he just does the stuff and like you know, some of it's like, oh yeah, he uh you know, he's he's obviously doing the stuff um for like for the Targaryens and everything. And then other things he's like, oh I'm doing it for the realm and it's like you you never you you never really know exactly where he is he is standing on a lot of these things and it's also really hard just to trace him through the backstory because you know you see him and he pops up and then he does a couple of things and then he's gone and then he goes to the wall and then you know and then he's a tree and you're just like oh <laughs> that yeah that guy oh yeah he turned into a tree you know he, everyone he literally that. evolved exactly exactly yeah. yeah coming back to that rorschach image there's just so many uh ways to consider him because he has so many potential motives at play and moves between so many different realms like you can consider 
uh, you know, Blood Raven to be a, a, a solo master manipulator, and he is at some points in his career, but a lot of his career is about him going head to head with another chess master. He was born into this blood feud between the families of Blackwood and Bracken, Bracken being a, another family in the Riverlands nearby. The Blackwoods and Brackens have the McCoy Hatfield. They're constantly fighting over land, <laughs> constantly blaming the other for the start of their feud. And Aegon IV also had a mistress among the Brackens, and the child he produced there was Agor Rivers, a.k.a. Bittersteel. And naturally, Bloodraven and Bittersteel hated each other their entire lives. Uh, they, they uh, As I say, they kind of inherited that blood feud from their family, so you can think about it that way. But you can also think about the Bloodraven-Bittersteel feud as a per- purely kind of personal and actually romantic one, because they were both trying to seduce a Shiera Seastar, their sister, another a child of Aegon IV. She's described as born with one dark blue eye and one bright green one. She was the greatest beauty of her age, a slender and elegant woman, slim of waist and full of breast. She had the silver-gold hair of the Targaryens, thick and curling, and wore it very long. She had a heart-shaped face, much like Melisandre, which is worth pointing out. Full lips and her mismatched eyes were strangely large and full of mischief. Her rivals said she used them to melt men's hearts. Even at an early age, she was a great reader. She spoke a dozen tongues and surrounded herself with ancient scrolls. Like her mother, she was reputed to practice the dark arts. Though she never wed, she had many offers and several lovers through the years. Her most ardent admirer was her half-brother Bloodraven, who proposed marriage to her half a hundred times. Shara gave him her bed, but never her hand. It amused her more to make him jealous. So it's it's interesting <laughs> because, yeah, you have this aspect where Bloodraven seems to be at, at many levels the most powerful person in the world, yet the thing he wanted most at this most kind of personal level he never got to have. He never got to get married to the woman he loved, and at, at this level she was able to to control and make use of him. And she was obviously a very kind of intellectually and magically focused person herself. That does seem to be where they kind of came together, that they were they were both really into sorcery, and they were both bitter steel was much more a hard-nosed military dude. And he was into, you know, he was into cavalry and tents and spears and such. And <laughs> the reason Sheriff's, one of the reasons Sheriff's seemed to favor Blood Raven is that they were into magic from an early age. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, had a huge impact on them going forward. It always sticks out because, like, it's, like, obvious, like, around everyone else, he's this, like, brooding, like, people see him as a monster. He walks around hooded all the time and everything. But then he's literally like following his half sister around like, like, you know, like, Hey, will you marry me? You know, like I just, that's true. He's probably writing poetry about her. There is like a, there is that like kind of Byronic aspect to blood Raven where suddenly with Shiera, Mm -hmm. he, he starts seeming like he's more kind of dashing and like a, you know, a dark suitor who's going to, who's kind of dangerous, but but very charming, Mm -hmm. which is not how anyone else in Westeros views him. <laughs> no, you get yeah, you get these. You already get, you're getting these different angles on him, and that personal relationship is gonna is gonna come back when he talks to Bran, of course, uh, uh, later on in his story. He's gonna bring it back to that. Mm-hmm. But so, um, Blood Raven was brought to court uh, by his by his mother's family by the Blackwoods because they were they were in at the time in the royal court, and he became very friendly with the uh, the heir to the throne, Aegon the Fourth's supposedly true born son, Daron the Second. Although later on there became a widespread rumor that Daron II was not in fact the true-born son of Dagon IV, and that, that uh, helped lead to the Blackfire Rebellion, which was led by Damon Blackfire, another of Dagon IV's bastards, the most uh, handsome and charming and warrior. He's basically the, the Renly Baratheon of his times, the one, that, the one that's, that everyone liked and everyone was kind of getting behind in the South. And Damon was advised 
by Bittersteel, who wanted kind of revenge on the main branch of the family for how he'd been treated because he had never been invited to court. Bloodraven naturally sided with the main branch of the family, and uh, at the Battle of Redgrass Field, he personally, with his arrows, killed not only Damon, but Damon's two young teenage sons. So naturally, that led to a downtick in his reputation. He was hated by many as a kinslayer afterwards for this. He became the Hand of the King and the Spymaster under his nephew, Aerys I. Aerys I was one of those Targaryens who just stays inside and reads all day. They're not the most harmful kind of Targaryens, but they tend to leave room for the more harmful kind of Targaryens. So Bloodraven as Hand became known for sorcery and executing potential rebels, and it was all in the name of keeping a hard line against the Blackfires. And we start to see him directly on page in the Dunk and Egg stories uh, set in this era, because uh, Egg, a.k.a. Egg on the Fifth, is a young kinsman of Bloodraven's, and Dunk, his, his knightly companion, kind of sees uh, some of Bloodraven uh, at work. Uh, eventually, this leads up to the Great Council of, of 233, when there is no clear, obvious successor to the throne, and the lords are fighting about it. A Blackfire uh, claimant comes forward. Bloodraven promptly executes him. So the newly crowned Egg, a.k.a. Egg on the Fifth, sent Bloodraven to the Night's Watch as punishment for that. Bloodraven was then elected Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. This was around, like, uh, 30-ish years uh, before Robert's Rebellion, around 50-ish years before the story takes place. He was thought lost beyond the wall before turning up again in the main series as the three-eyed crow in Bran's chapters, the, the, the magical metaphysical force guiding him through his dreams, bringing him to the cave of the children of the forest beyond the wall. There, Bloodraven is currently extending his mortal span by jacking into the Tree of Life, like you do, Vibing with the children of the forest, possibly cannibalizing folks. Eh, you know, he get, he's gotten up to quite a few things over the decades. In George R. R. Martin's words, Bloodraven is currently half a tree. And that is quite a journey for one dude to take place over, like, a century and a half. He is, the, the man has lived. Gotta give him that. Yeah, he's had a, uh, he's had a full life. He's, uh, I mean... What hasn't he Just, done, Blood Raven? A true, yeah. a true Renaissance tree. Yeah, yeah, a true, a true Renaissance uh, uh, vagabond sorcerer, <laughs> uh, scarecrow man. Yeah, I just like I, I can only like. He must have been the the most cryptic motherfucker around. Like, can you imagine <laughs> that dude in the Night's Watch? Like, like he's just like staring out beyond the wall, and he's like talking about the he's talking about weirwoods or some shit like <laughs> something he knows from esoteric knowledge from ten thousand years ago and everybody else in, around him's like uh yeah sure man what do you want to do with the grain we, we, we need to do something with the, <laughs> sure, boss. With the grain and he's like food matters not for <laughs> our bodies our bodies will live forever in the tree of time and they're like yeah um okay i'm uh, yeah i'm, I'm going to go you, i'm going to go back to training the new guys you <laughs> you stay here i got practical things to do we got we got snow coming in from the north we got wild things to deal with <laughs> exactly and this is yeah. this is the area of blood raven's life actually we know the least about is his time as lord commander of the night's watch um i got to imagine he was elected lord commander just because because what are you gonna tell him now? Do you want you want that job <laughs> to tell Blood Raven he's yeah. not in charge wherever he goes? But like you know, he's got obviously got a lot of experience. I imagine a lot of people in the Night's Watch, you know, don't have anywhere near that leadership skill. So despite despite his reputation, it yeah. makes sense that he, he kind of yeah. rolls r- rose to a role there and there. And yeah, at some point there, he he slipped over. He got was beyond the wall and went willingly mm-hmm. went to the Children of the Forest, or maybe 
meta version of cold hands it's not clear we got a, a great question from one of our patrons <laughs> ragged michael who asks did the wall heighten blood raven's powers or alternatively did being south of it dampen it who called him to the architect's hub of weirwood trees and does that matter and that's an interesting question because melisandre does say at one point that being at the wall like jacks up your magic that like this yeah it's just like a source of it and if you're around it it's just you know it, it's what's one of those things that that heightens your sensitivity so it's possible blood raven like, there's no real sign that Blood Raven knew about the White Walkers and stuff, or at least he wasn't talking about it back in the day. Maybe he knew about it, but didn't care to Ooh. talk about it. But it seems like once he got to the north, maybe, yeah, maybe like you're saying, maybe his third eye opened even wider. <laughs> maybe he he took even more of the yeah. spice or the water of life at that point. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if the wall heightened his powers. It, it's interesting to me, though, that his magic does. The, or the magic that he uses um, does seem to work both north and south of the wall because he's able to um, to skin change into animals and things like that that can go past the wall, obviously, and um, and and he's able to project into things from 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 the tree. And you know, I don't know if that's because it goes, you know, if if the roots go under the the wall or if that's how it works or something like that um it's you know it's it's interesting to me that that the dragons in i think it was fire and blood volume one they they wouldn't fly north of the wall yes and to me that's really interesting and i think that i mean i do not know any of the you know meta side of this but that seems to me something where george was like yeah that whole thing where they fly north and there's a really dumb plan to go do this thing to get his to get one of the zombies and bring it back to prove to everyone yeah that's not really gonna work like that kind of seems like what that is so like if they could stop dragons and cold hands can't go through it and the white walkers uh, others definitely can't go through it like how can he commute how can he work on both sides of it that to me is is interesting and i mean i don't i don't i mean maybe there are other examples of that but i don't know them no i totally agree blood raven in, in many ways just breaks all the rules right like that's kind of his thing like he seems to be mm -hmm. he seems to be the one kinslayer who more or less gets away with it like obviously he's punished mm. later in life but he's still around as a character he doesn't die like yeah. george doesn't seem all that morally judgy on him more than other yeah. characters because like blood raven seems to be the one character who's who's breaking the a lot of those boundaries that set up for a lot of characters because yeah the, the fact that the dragons can't go north of the wall that kind of sets up that like dragons aren't going to be useful against the others until the others are about to kill everybody mm -hmm. until the wall is down. That's the only situation yeah. in which that would work. But blood Raven is like the one person with dragon blood who can operate up there. Cause he's also got that. He's got the, the Northern part of his, his heritage, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, yeah. standard as with star Wars, standard asterisk about fantasy's obsession with blood magic and genetic handing down yeah. of the important roles. Like, I'm not in, you know, I'm not inventing or endorsing this stuff. This just is kind of baked into to, to the, to the genre and you make of it what you will. But that does, that does seem to be going mm -hmm. on with blood Raven that he has these two bloodlines in a, in a way, not too different from Jon Snow, who also might be kind of significant in that regard and has himself, uh, been north of the wall but yeah so that is kind of blood raven status as like this this guy who can who can and has done anything and that if you kind of step mm -hmm. back and look at 
the totality of what George has written, Blood Raven starts to seem like essentially the most important character in this entire universe, that he's as close as yeah. we get to a prime mover, even more than his his kinsman Rhaegar, who is often held up as like the, the prime mover of a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think the Rhaegar comparison uh, holds up in a lot of ways. Both are Targaryens that are super into prophecy. Rhaegar also has connection to the Northern and Old God's magic through Lyanna. Both of them seem to have a blind spot about how their actions would be perceived by others. Blood Raven didn't seem to care that his police state was making him enemies. Rhaegar didn't seem to care that running off with Lyanna would cause problems. And both of them are mostly in the backstory. They are they are morally amb- ambiguous, both Blood Raven and Rhaegar, because we don't have direct access to everything they did, let alone why they did it. One difference, though, is with Rhaegar, a lot of people remember him fondly. And like, mm-hmm. they're like, ah, Rhaegar should have been king, or Rhaegar was a good man, or like, you know, he he helped people out. And with Blood Raven, there's, I was going back through some old archives of uh, George's interactions with fans, and someone came up to him with a Blood Raven t-shirt and said, and George said, huh, that's weird, because, quote, nobody likes Blood Raven. Which, <laughs> uh, you know, what an, awesome. what an insult to my to my guest, a Blood Raven fan, George. You really should have oh, yeah. really thought this Hurtful. through. <laughs> Hurtful <laughs> language. <laughs> But That's yeah, it's awesome. Blood Raven. Blood Raven does, you know, unlike unlike Rhaegar, he doesn't have a, a lot of people uh, n- nostalgic uh, for, for for the good old days of Blood Raven. He uh, he, you know, as when he was spymaster in hands of the king, he instituted was basically a pre modern surveillance state in Westeros in order to combat his nemesis, House Blackfire, across the water. And he would probably say that the results uh, speak for themselves. That the Blackfires failed every time. The, his main branch of the Targaryens kept the throne. But from what we see in Duncan Egg, there the backlash to Blood Raven's ty- tyranny kept the Blackfire Coalition intact and made sure there kept being people on the mainland who were unsatisfied, so it extended their cause for generations. And you could argue that his his, his focus on the enemy led to him neglecting other affairs of state. That we again see in the Duck and Egg mm-hmm. stories that there was a bunch of famines going on, there are, are peasants kind of roaming all over the place and Blood Raven isn't doing anything about it, the Ironborn are raiding as they tend to do when anything mm-hmm. goes wrong on the mainland. And like I, I was saying earlier, Blood Raven finally went too far when he executed the, you know, hilariously named Anus Blackfire. Who was he was just you know he was not invading he was a reasonable man he came to the great council he was putting his Ford claim peacefully and and as soon as he got there Blood Raven just had him snatched and killed immediately mm-hmm. so Blood Raven had finally made his own side look delegitimate that he he finally made his main branch of the Targaryens look like they were the gangsters and criminals who were just taken over and killing everyone in their way and so the new king mm-hmm. Egg in order to even looked like he should really be in charge basically had to banish Blood Raven and Blood Raven rose to the top of the Night Watch naturally. But that is where, yeah, that that kind of that that ambiguity sets in about about how we're supposed to think about what Blood Raven does. But for for better or worse, he he manages to to to, to stick his thumb into every pie. We see that in the Duncan Egg days mm-hmm. that he's got this reputation yeah. of uh, a thousand eyes in one. He's always watching you. Mm. And yeah, and I mean, it shouldn't be like uh, it, it shouldn't be understated that like Blood Raven is a pretty awful person like he's a hard dude even harder than his time is called for yeah yeah he's like he he ignored like domestic situations like it it, the the timing it hasn't really been fleshed out but it seems like he ignored the ironborn raids on the western lands and uh Mm -hmm. and the reach for something like two years um and like famine was gripping uh the state and you know, he was ignoring that because he was so focused on the black fires. And then like he, he, the thing with, when they brought, uh, anus, a- a- God, God damn it. What a I know, George, what are you a- doing to me, George? 
Amy's <laughs> Amy's whatever Anus Blackfire. Um, when he came over, he he came over and he was like, "Look, I just want to present my claim." Like he was not, he did not have an army behind him or anything like that. And um, and, and so he showed up, and Blood Raven just immediately chopped off his fucking head. Like um, you know, there was no no two ways about it, and it's it's one of those things where like I, I do really like this character but you know you don't need to un- understate like the fact that his whole thing is like just arch util- utilitarianism like yeah always focused on quote unquote greater good and for most of his life the quote unquote greater good seemed to be helping the mainline targaryens stay in power and helping his you know assorted family members however he could and then later it seems it seems to have shifted to more of protecting everyone and i mean he to, he might have believed that he was protecting everyone at the time like and that the blackfires were were the risk above all those other things even though that seems asinine you know <laughs> knowing all the facts but sure sure um that's another thing that makes him interesting to me and with with i think blood raven hits so hard as a character because george is not just telling us he has a thousand eyes in one he's he's making us feel paranoid about him he shows us and he gives the reader a sense in both song of ice and fire and duncan egg that blood raven is everywhere and that he's doing everything and that he's doing more than you even think he could possibly be doing. Like, I will never forget reading Dance with Dragons the first time, and Bran finally gets to that cave, and he's describing this weird guy who's going to be his mentor, and he says he's got one red eye, and I realized who that is. And I just, this shock and glee <laughs> of like, that's Bloodraven. He's the three-eyed crow all along. He's not just in the backstory. He's in the story. He's pulling the yeah. strings long after everyone thought he was dead. He's training the protagonist of the main series to take over. That's just that's such a wild concept. George was asked about it, and he said that he wouldn't know. He he knew right from the start that Blood Raven was going to be a big deal like that, but that he had known the details uh, for a long, long time. And that as he started filling in the genealogies of the Targaryens and their rulers, that's really when Blood Raven came into play. And then he started linking that to his his early images of the of the Starks uh, and the Wolf Pups, because like yeah, you can get into so many things after that about what what stuff Blood Raven is doing. Like uh, yeah, there's the theory that he sent the Direwolves. He sent Renly the peach. Like, that was the peach <laughs> that he sent. The, some of them I think we probably will get some clarification on. Like, his connection to Rhaegar is very... Mm-hmm. It's not just the story elements that, that match up. Like, there seems to have been, like, he maybe didn't communicate with Rhaegar, but maybe, like, somehow pushed Rhaegar in a certain direction. Like, I think for so some too. reason, Rhaegar just showed, just one day, found this book and was like, oh, man, I, I'm i the prophecy guy. I gotta go Seems be the prophecy the guy. Like, yeah. I think, I think that's possibly I mean, I, true. Because, you know, because yeah. Rhaegar was chatting with Maester Aemon, who was, mm-hmm. his way, and Maester Aemon knew Bloodraven. He was, he's, because Maester yeah. Aemon is Egg's brother and was around for all of that shenanigans. So it's, we might have a game of telephone going on with the Targaryens where Bloodraven mm-hmm. talked to Maester Aemon and Maester Aemon talked to Rhaegar. I think that's entirely yeah. possible because you're right, Rhaegar switches on a dime, which is spooky. Mm-hmm. And it makes it seem like, you know, that's some, something, something might have happened there, like maybe in a dream or, you know, who knows. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, there's also like the other things like obviously we're going to talk about Euron later because you know uh because <laughs> because it's it's Emmett you know <laughs> and uh to me one of the really interesting things is like 
how many how many like kids did he leave just like dead or in a coma or something right. like that while he's trying to find Bran or I mean or Euron like you know if that connection which seems to be true like like comes to fruition is like well that it's that arch utilitarian thing like you were saying yeah like how many kids is worth it for him probably a terrifying yeah. amount yeah exactly and I'm very interested to see like if his um if it's presented like he figures it out like he whether he knows right now or not that like Euron is one of his fail like is one of his failed experiments um and if he finds that out and if he's like you know oh, sh- like i have to make this more right some right. like you know i don't whatever he's going to whatever he's going to do and I, you know I don't know what that is, but I'd be very, I'd be very interested to do that, and I really hope that he that that he finds out, you know, or like he already knew, and you know, like Bran has to be like, dude, you fucking ended the world, thanks, man. <laughs> You're both really saving the world and ending the world. Somehow, it's always about you, isn't it, Blood Raven? Yeah, and that's. Yep. Oh. Uh, it's it's just I love that conceit of his character where he was like this paranoid like police state politician and then he crossed Mm. over into the magical realm and it's like oh i'm just gonna also use those techniques like i'm now i'm now my eyes can literally be everywhere and i can literally watch everyone like when he was a a politician uh back Mm. in the day in the targaryen days he still used sorcery of course but it was for kind of more military ends there's the strong hints in the third duncan egg story that there's this character named Maynard Plum who's hanging around the main group of characters. And it's very strongly hinted that this is actually Bloodraven, that he's he's uh, constantly uh, shown with this this uh, moonstone uh, brooch and moonstones we know or can, can be involved in glamours. We see that with Melisandre. At one point, uh, someone some other character is saying, we'd all be bastard sons of old King Aegon if half the tales were true. And, and Sir Maynard says, who's to say we're not? Because Bloodraven is actually a bastard son of old King Aegon. <laughs> Uh, at one point, Blood Ra- Dunk is looking and he sees Maynard Plum. And he looks like, is, oh, is he wearing a hood? Is that a single eye? And then he like blurs and seems to change in front of Dunk. And then later, Maynard Plum <laughs> says, someone else is wondering how much Blood Raven knows. And Maynard Plum says, the answer to that is quite a lot. And then later, after all the conspiracy mongering and the Blackfire stuff that makes up that book has happened, and Dunk is looking around for all his friends, he's like, oh, what happened to Maynard Plum? He seems to have completely vanished during the night. So strongly, strongly hinted that this is actually Blood Raven in disguise, and that's just that's a fun Easter egg. But it's also funny because, like, because he's disguised, Blood Raven is actually kind of more honest as Manhard Plum than he mm-hmm. is elsewhere. Like when someone says, like, "Oh, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna, we we need a more martial king. We need a warrior like King Makar, who is who's Egg's dad. He's he's a great warrior. He should mm-hmm. be the next king." And Maynard Plum says, "No, the next king in the rightful succession is Rhaegal, who is one of the crazy Targaryens." And Blood Raven's saying that because Rhaegal would be easy to control. So you, he's he's kind of more, he's ironically more open as other people <laughs> than he can <laughs> can ever afford to to be as as himself. We got a question from our patron, Sir Frank, in that regard. Is Blood Raven's turn as Maynard Plum trolling an entire camp of Blackfire supporters the most fun any character has had in A Song of Ice and Fire? He's always he's always speaking through someone. And the same thing holds with the magic. When he's uh, he's showing up, there's a theory he's showing up as Mormont's, Elsie uh, Mormont's bird, who's always very talkative and seems very interested in John all the time. And in fact, may have rigged the election or taken part in the election. So there's a theory that that's Blood Raven, too. Yeah, I like the idea that the bird like literally rigged the election. Like these people, they one. were 
they weren't going to go along with it. Like they were like, yes, Sam. Okay. Whatever. Okay. We'll vote for John. Sure. And then like the bird is just like, snow, 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 snow. Like, and they're like, I mean, the bird's saying it. We got to do it now. Like the bird won't shut the fuck up. What are we going to do? <laughs> it's too perfect. But yeah, no, I love that. And he, I like, I like that because also just the bird is very sarcastic a lot of the time. Mm. So I like that that's like, you know, Blood Raven, like it's because Blood Raven clearly knows most of the Night's Watchmen are going to die. So the crow is just always yeah. saying like, you know, dead, dead corpse cake. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's just wonderful because as with the kids, Blood Raven is willing to let a lot of people die. That's his, that's his whole thing. Yeah. As long as you add up, as long as the number of people alive is one or more higher than the number of dead, Blood Raven <laughs> thinks you've done a-okay. Yep, yep. He, you know, just the perfect example of the trolley problem. On the yep. one hand, you have thousands upon thousands of dead children. On the other hand, you have some people being alive after the ice zombies, maybe. <laughs> A handful. Who's to they'll say? Be, they'll be so grateful. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and then when we get to Blood Raven uh, Beyond the Wall, and those, yeah, like the, the end of one brand chapter and then one more brand chapter after that where he's in the cave in A Dance with Dragons. Blood Raven has become just this this just in, incredibly uh, well written uh, picture of this this like dreaming godlike lord and in, in woven into the weirwood. It's just a beautiful beautiful scene. I was rereading it today when Bran is introduced and he's like it's a pale lord in ebon finery dreaming on his weirwood throne and he's talking about watching Bran being born and Ned being born. And it's that great moment when Bran is like, "So are you going to help me walk? I came all this way. You're going to fix my legs?" And Blood Raven looks oh. at him like, "No, kid, that's not." what this oh, is man you will never walk again but you will fly that is so heartbreaking to me obviously this is how it was going to happen there was no way blood raven was just gonna like wave his you know weirwood wand and uh you know brand's legs are fixed and his back is fine you know like that's not how the story goes and that would be a really cheap out anyway but it's just so heartbreaking because you're like Oh, right. He's a 10-year-old boy or 11 yeah. or, you know, I don't, and you're just like. Exactly. He doesn't know that fuck. the tropes say he's not going to get his legs back. He doesn't know that. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. It's yeah and it's just like, yeah, it's, George writes this stuff in there and like, I his writing of the kids isn't always my favorite. That's, you know, sure. not, you know, it's just not my favorite sometimes, but when he gets those moments where the kids say things where you can like i you can immediately think like oh yeah a kid would absolutely say that like absolutely and that that's the thing with with brand saying that to me because you're like oh oh you thought that the whole time oh no oh yeah. no <laughs> Oh no. No, no 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 i got other plans for you kid which is again the the blood raven thing yeah i agree that's what when George writes the kids best is those piercing little moments like when Arya meets Beric Dondarrion and Thoros and learns that Thoros is bringing Beric back from the dead yeah. again and again. She says, could you bring back a man without a head? Not six times, just once. Yeah. And they again, that, that same thing where the adults look at the kid with pity and are like, that's not what we're here to do. We can't fix your <laughs> yeah. past and all the trauma. That's like, sorry, kid. That's yeah. even wizards it, can't pull that yeah. off. Yeah, it, and I mean, it's heartbreaking on one level, like when Arya says that, because, you know, she's like, she, for a second, like, just has this glimmer of hope, like, oh, yep. we can go, and we can get dad, and we, and Stories we could sew his, yep. mm -hmm. his head back on, like, and I mean, like, <laughs> it, like you, 
and and I'm I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just like no, it's true. In that moment, like, anything's possible. Yeah, and but the but the thing is, and just it's the same thing with Blood Raven. Even though they can bring, they can do like this these limited forms of magic, and in Blood Raven's case, he could do a lot of it, but it's still not to the point where like they can put some guy's head back together or they can refuse your skull and your legs and like they don't the 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 magic doesn't work that way and so it's doubly heartbreaking because not only is the kid getting excited about this thing they have in their head it doesn't even actually work like that yeah it's yep that that disconnect between the child and adult world i think is something that a lot of fantasy can do really well and I think uh, it's it's captured really well there. So in terms of uh, yeah that that imagery of Blood Raven, when we get to the cave beyond the wall, as as many of people smarter than me about mythology have pointed out, this is this is some dead on connections to uh, the myths about Odin and all the great Norse myths about those gods and about Ragnarok and the end of the world where we're all headed. You have the the eye imagery very strong with Odin. Odin lost an eye as well. Blood Raven lost an eye during Red Grass Field, and Odin is always a display with having sacrificed one of his eyes. Odin has has Raven servants very connected to Blood Raven. There was the Tree of Life connection. Odin was was linked to a mirror a mirror like a, a lake a, a pool of water at the base of the Tree of Life. Odin was a teacher of the gods, which lines up very well with Blood Raven and Bran. Odin is a treacherous deceiver, and even at his blood, even at his best, Blood Raven is always lying to people. He's definitely not telling Bran the whole truth uh, about what's happening to him. Mm. And uh, when you when you uh, Odin is described in a, a, a copy of a Norse myths I still had uh, laying around from childhood, he's described when when Odin sat on his throne, two fierce wolves lay at his feet, and two black ravens perched on his shoulders. At dawn, he would send the ravens off to fly over the world and look into the darkest corners. At noontime, they would come back to sit on his shoulders and whisper into his ears all the secret things they had learned. Nothing was hidden from Odin, the raven god. So sounds very strongly like Blood Raven with his, his, his many bird servants he can literally possess and look through and see what's happening. And then in terms of the more kind of uh, apocalyptic stuff, that's uh, the more kind of metal imagery in Norse, the ones we're all familiar with from Led Zeppelin songs. When Odin peered into the farthest reach of Jotunheim, he could see a gigantic eagle sitting at the northern edge of the world. The eagle was really a Jotun in disguise, and he was the maker of storm winds. When he lifted his huge wings, the north winds blew out from under them, and when he flapped them, icy storms howled over the world. And as bitter blasts swept through the bleak halls, the Jotuns broke out of their ice-bound realm and rushed against the earth, pelting the valleys with snow and rolling blocks of ice down from the mountains. So there I think we can see maybe a version of what George is going for with with Blood Raven and the others, the long night they entered the world, and with a potential role for Euron, which I will get into a little later when we talk more about, about theories surrounding these characters. So Blood Raven has the strong Odin imagery. You could also, I found an argument online saying he's also a version of Loki, because Loki is a trickster god, kind of like Blood Raven, and Blood Raven, uh, Loki also fathers Fenrir, the bound wolf, which is similar to Bran, who is a winged oh, wolf. He's bound shit. by chains. Yeah, the I mean, that Fenrir, uh, sorry, I... I'm from the American Southeast, so my accent sometimes gets in the way of. Uh, <laughs> oh no, of, worries! I was tr- I was uh, stumbling through the Norse words there myself. You're good. No, no. Uh, I think the fin- the fin rear thing is interesting because the bound wolf. I mean, Bran is the winged wolf, but he is also the bound wolf because he is uh, he is disabled. He's physically disabled, mm-hmm. um, and so he he's bound to a chair or a seat or something like that. So I think that's. That's very interesting. I mean, I, I never thought of that before ever. That's awesome. There's some, yeah, some great Norse rabbit holes you can go down down with a mm-hmm. with a song of ice and fire. I remember just from doing some uh, some Reddit research for this. 
And so, that, you know, all that positions Blood Raven is kind of like the guy saving the world, right? Like, he's the one standing mm. in the way of, of the ice monsters, and he's the one training Bran, who's going to fly and save the world. And this makes Blood Raven sound like, you know, the, your classic, wise, old mentor figure, who's, you know, he's Gandalf. He's the one who's going to, he's, he's the one who's half in our world and half in the, the world of the fairies, and he's going to guide us. And that's, but it's such an interesting contrast with what we see of him as a politician in Dunkin' Egg, where he's... He's a tyrant, mm. and like like we're saying, like Varus, he thinks the greater good is justifying everything he does. That's what Varus, you know, has. He's got his long game. All these dead kids, these kids without tongues, are worth it. And uh, he's he's like Tyrion, also in that Tyrion, also as Hand of the King, gets a negative mm. reputation, and that's partially because of stuff he does, and it's also partially because is of his appearance and heritage and things out of his control. And I think you, you can see that with how Blood Raven is described. Where uh, one one enemy of his says, "Make no mistake, tis Lord Rivers who rules us with his spells and spies." And someone else says, "He is the king's hand, yet he does nothing." Whilst the Kraken spread flame and terror up and down the Sunset Sea, the Ironborn, like we were talking about earlier, the Ironborn are always this test of whoever's in charge of Westeros. Like, can you deal with these asshole pirates? And if you can't, you probably don't deserve to be in charge because they're not really good at what they do. So if you can't keep these guys in line, you're probably not doing good at the whole protector of the realm thing. <laughs> And you're you're the, probably yeah. losing your legitimacy. The Greyjoy fail sons just it's... like up and down, uh, like every one of them just like I'm gonna raid, and then what? <laughs> then profit. And then, and then the mainland's gonna kick my ass. Then that's yeah. what. And then I'm gonna slink back to this shitty island where I can't <laughs> grow anything, and I'm gonna be like, oh yeah, we take everything by the iron price. Invent uh, my little racist Viking slash clan mythology about how it was all oh, taken yeah. away from me, and try yeah. it again in a few generations. Exactly, and lost, so yeah, and lost so cause, it, yeah, lost cause exactly. ideology, just up and down, yeah. And if you're letting, yeah, so if you're letting them go, it's not a good sign. People are turning against Blood Raven for that reason. Dunk says words like that can cost a man his head. Some might say you're talking treason, and people reply, "Well, how can the truth be treason?" In King Daron's day, a man did not have to fear to speak his mind, but now. So that's that's very reasonable objections to Blood Raven. I think we can't speak mm. our mind. He's ignoring the defense of the realm. He's he's spying on everybody. Uh, Egg says that his his uh, his previous the previous hand of the king, Uncle Baylor Breakspear, who's basically JFK, like this like kind of over lionized nostalgic <laughs> figure who was a great guy, but also seemed to have just been kind of like oh he was our our perfect savior who would have saved everything. Yeah, yeah. Uncle Baylor, according to Egg, said that clemency was best when dealing with an honorable foe. If a defeated man believes he will be pardoned, he may lay down his sword and bend the knee. But Lord Bloodraven said that when you pardon rebels, you only plant the seeds of the next rebellion. So there's that there's that mindset we were talking about, and you know I can see. A cold logic to it, but I think George is, is showing us, you know, that he's he's really kind of planting the seeds for the next rebellion yeah. by tr by by treating everyone so harshly. Yeah, I mean, and it's something that I think comes up in the series a lot. You have these people who say, if you give people clemency, then you plant the seeds for the next rebellion. That, like Cersei says, almost the same thing. I think. Yep. In yep. A Clash of Kings. Um, and uh, that's like Tywin's like MO, like across the board. Yeah, that's the Lannisters it, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it, – you like – I mean, I mean, obviously George is, is drawing these parallels. But at the same time, it's just like how do you think this is true? Like there have been – his – Bloodraven or Brendan or Bloodraven's entire – like political career was just fighting off 
rebellion after rebellion from the black fires and then like peasants threatening to revolt because of famine and and uh disease and then the gray joys and it's like you've cut off all these heads and it didn't fix anything yep you yep. like at some point you have to realize that like and and this is the thing about blood raven to me because I know why Tywin doesn't realize it, like other than like plot reasons. Like he doesn't sure. realize it because he's Tywin and he thinks he is the greatest thing ever. But exactly. Bloodraven knows that he is hated and he knows these things that are going on because it's like alluded to that he can literally like skin change like hundreds of ravens, like if not simultaneously, at least like very closely together and see all of these things that are going on and he just doesn't realize that maybe, like, if Aenys Blackfire comes in, what is going to happen? They're going to be like, okay, thank you for your speech. You are a Blackfire. We are not going to do this because it would literally split the realm in half. We are going to give it to to Aemon or, you know, or, or mm-hmm. the other, or the other Aegon. Like, that is how that's going to go, and Bloodraven is very smart. That's the thing. Like he is a very intelligent person, and he's just like sometimes. Nah, man, I just gotta, I gotta kill this guy. Like he's Anus Blackfire was was about as much of a threat to to take the Iron Throne as I am. Like, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, you're happen. totally right. It wasn't even like the very fact that he was just showing up to petition shows kind of how weak the Blackfire cause had gone. This was the mm-hmm. the only way they had. But you know, when you're when you're a very effective hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And I think Blood yeah. Raven had just yeah. he developed a certain set of skills and had started to lack the ability to look outside them. And I think I think the the contrast to Tywin is a good one because by the time we meet Tywin he is permanently the way he is. Like, we get hints that he might have been a softer dude when his wife was still alive. We do get Mm -hmm. a sense that he is this way in part because his father just laid down on the job, and so he's had to just make up for that. But by the time we meet him, he's just, he's been a monster for decades and is never going to hear any word against any decision he has ever made. And with Bloodraven, I think, again, I think he is, there's a little more of the Tyrion vibe where it's just like, okay, you hate me, so I'm going to lean into it. Because you're mm-hmm. never going to like me. So I may as well go all the way and be exactly like what you think I am. Like there's yeah. at one point in the Duncan Egg stories, there is a preacher. Like there's the one preacher in the main series who's talking about Tyrion. Like this, the, the pipings of a twisted monkey demon have taken over the realm. And there's a very similar guy in Duncan Egg who says that Blood Raven, his hands are scarlet with a brother's blood. A shadow came in his command who strangled brave Prince Valar's sons. The grave has claimed them all, this pale bird with bloody beak. And so like that stuff is like just unreasonable and like you know that's there's nothing to do with who blood raven is or what he's done this is just entirely about he's the kind of character i like to put in my campfire story and get everyone angry mm-hmm. about and there's nothing blood raven can do about that so there is that there is more of like a, a kind of a, a tortured outcast feeling that kind of develops with him where he is hated for some legit reasons but like even at his best he's never going to be allowed into the society that he's part of mm. and he's always just going to be alone a lonely god kind of like how how Danny calls herself yeah he's i mean he's a um i don't know if he's an overall sympathetic figure i definitely don't think he is but he there there are many sympathetic aspects of him like uh you know the the thing with with uh with Shira Seastar he he obviously wanted to marry her loved her very dearly and and that never happened and then i mean the fact that he 
was, I mean, in a lot of ways vilified. Just like it's clear, at least to me and Duncan Egg, that like a lot of the stuff that is said about him, while some of it is true, um, you know, to whatever extent, like some of it is just like absolute. You know, it's it's not it's just rumors and slander that people make up when things are bad, like yeah, when exactly. things are bad in the realm and, you know, foods running low and everything like that. Of course, they're going to say that shit like, right. of course, they're it can't say be the king because he's perfect. It's the evil counselor. Yeah. He must be. Screwed. Yeah, yeah, that's classic. Yeah. And I mean, but in this case, it was, I mean, the, you know, right. the, the, some, the somewhat evil counselor, because, you know, right. It's half true. It, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, it usually is the evil counselor. It just also usually is the, the evil king as well. True, so. true. So you're often getting hit from both ends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that 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 mix of myth and and reality with Blood Raven. And it's for me on the whole, I think he he embodies what I both really kind of love and hate about this story. And that's the the truly insane ambition of it. And that if you look at Blood Raven, George is just combining so many genres and archetypes and myths blood raven is odin and he's he's loki but he's also kind of like merlin who was bound by nimue to a tree at one point another wizard uh the uh song of ice and fire theorizer Cantu said that blood raven is like hypnos the greek god of sleep who also reigns from an ebony throne over a realm of darkness and silence populated by dreamers rivers run through it and it lies beyond the edge of the world Stephen Atwell, who writes about the Song of Ice and Fire, uh, compared it to more kind of Christian rise and fall arcs. There's something almost biblical about Baylor Breakspear's Baylor Breakspear's Twelve Good Years and Brendan Bloodraven's Twelve Bad Years, in which the Targaryen dynasty tottered on the Iron Throne and almost fell on Tourney Field, plagues, the end in fire at Summer Hall. You can see with a character like this that George George wants it all. Like he wants, he has like no restraint about everything he's piling onto a character. He wants the mythological substance of Tolkien at all. But he also wants the modern style of comics and horror movies and heavy metal album covers. And I love that ambition because it's so unapologetic. George wants just the biggest and and best version of every narrative element he can get his hands on. Every castle has to be the most unreasonably huge castle. And everyone has to have the biggest, bloodiest backstory. (laughs) And that also makes the damn thing take forever to write and sink under its own weight, which is what everyone hates. And I, I, unfortunately, I don't think you can really pry the two apart. I think what, what people really love about this story, the density and what you were, uh, what you've said before about the amount of writing people have done on it. I think that goes hand in hand with what makes it take so long and what makes him constantly Mm -hmm. rewrite it and doubt himself, because I think that's what he wants to create. And that takes just an intense amount of thought. And, but, but that kind of, there's that mashup kitchen sink quality that does remind me of Star Wars. And I think there are, Mm. there is some, there is some there is a touch of Star Wars, I think, to to a lot of the Blood Raven stuff too. But yeah, that's that's what I love about his character is that he's just he's just everything. Everything at once. Yeah, it he's he's got so he he's pulling so many different things because, you know, there is the the Odin um the Odin idea. Odin was, you know, we spoke or uh uh, Emmett spoke about it earlier. He was crucified on a tree, um, missing an eye, loves ravens, et cetera, et cetera. Um and but there are so many parallels into Star Wars that to me they cross in and out throughout the series. So like in one sense he's like Obi Wan because he's going to be Obi Wan and he's going to teach Luke who is Bran in this scenario. But he's also 
kind of like Yoda because he's ancient and he lives near a weird freaky cave under a giant tree and there's this whole aspect of you know like the training that they're going to do and and i see a lot of the like cave aspect Mm -hmm. of of this as like a as a very weird mirror for a lot of the like dagobah training sequence in uh in empire where instead of you know yoda hopping around and like dicking around with luke and taking his food and all that um you know blood raven is explaining to Bran that he's never going to walk again but uh you know he gets to be more in touch with the trees that's cool right everybody loves that so that's the you know there's the tradition of having kind of some kind of injury to awaken your shamanic powers and i also just think george mm-hmm. just likes the dramatic trade-off of kind of a coming of age thing like the thing you think you want as a kid you don't get to have you have to accept the adult realities which in yeah. this case is is taking on that that kind of mantle and that is very classic hero's journey stuff about confronting the darker realities within yourself in order to grow up and uh, kind of take your mentor's place for for better or worse. Uh, very, I think, very strongly stands out with those characters. Speaking of Star Wars, there's a kind of third leg to that triangle. If you're thinking Star Wars, like you're thinking, okay, there's Obi Wan, there's Luke, but what about what about Darth Vader? What about the fact that Obi Wan <laughs> had a previous apprentice that kind of went dark, and he's trying to make up for it with the current one? Could there be anything like that in the Song of Ice and Fire? Well, now that I happen to mention it. <laughs> uh, we were talking uh, a little bit a couple times previously about the character of Euron Greyjoy, who is uh, – was when A Feast for Crows first came out, the fourth book in the series in which Euron was introduced, people kind of treated his character with bafflement, like it, not even not liking his character, but just not sure – what he was about or why he was in the story uh-huh. or why we were still with the Ironborn at all. And I get oh, that. Yeah. And I think that's how some people still feel about it. But I think Euron kind of snaps into place once you start putting him in context with the Blood Raven and Bran stuff. Because something that stands out about Euron relative to a lot of other Ironborn is that he's set up as being very interested in sorcery and having traveled all over the world in his exile from the Iron Islands, gathering more sorceress implements. When he's first introduced, he gives this huge speech about how he's been all over the world, and everyone prays to different kinds of gods in their own ways, and the only response is silence, which is the name of his boat. And that he has come as kind of this this, this answer to the, to the silence of the gods and the failure of the gods to protect their people. And uh, as the story continues, and we get a release chapter from The Winds of Winter called The Forsaken, he starts being much more open about his uh, apocalyptic ambitions to basically reduce the entire world to ash and make himself a god out of all the corpses. Your classic <laughs> supervillain shit. So the kind of wild freakiness of the imagery aside, I think the, the question that comes up when you look at this stuff is where, where does that come from? How does one of these, like you were saying, these kind of these bum-rushing second-rate losers on the Iron Islands, how do you get a supervillain out of there? And some of the stuff with Euron's character seems to point at potential involvement with Bloodraven because Euron calls himself Crow's Eye and has as his banner two birds crowning an eye, which is strongly suggestive of Bloodraven with his crow and eye uh, imagery and how he opened Bran's third eye. Even more suggestive, he tells his brother Victarion at one point that when he was a child, he dreamed that he could fly. And that when he woke up, he couldn't. And or so the maester told him, which is exactly what happens to Bran. He has a dream that he can fly. He wakes up. He's like, oh, I can't. And his maester tells him, oh, Bran, those foolish dreams. You should focus on the secular world. So (laughs) it's, I think, strongly possible that the reason Euron is so mystically inclined and freaky relative to the other Ironborn is because Bloodraven opened his third eye as a child when he was searching for his messiah figure to take on the White Walkers. 
And Bran's vision, when he's uh, he's having, having his falling dream with Bloodraven to test him, he sees a bunch of bones from a bunch of other dreamers that were, like, impaled, like, you know, who didn't pass the test. So we know Bloodraven has been trying this for a while, that Bran is far from the first kid he's tried this with. And if, if Bloodraven, you know, Euron has these, he's talking about... Uh, that these these are the last days when the world shall be broken and remade. He talks about all of Westeros dying, and one reason he might be talking like that is because Blood Raven showed him the others, which is also what Blood Raven showed Bran. So I think there, there's a, a potential connection here where Euron is a, kind of the rogue protege and the the previous one to occupy Bran's slot, and that he's the yeah the classic kind of corrupted, damaged protege relative to to the shining good boy, yeah. relatively speaking. Uh, of Bran Stark, <laughs> and I've I, I've always liked that that theory a lot because I think it I think it explains why Euron is in the story at all that he's there to act as kind of this dark mirror to Bran and show you mm-hmm. that once again Blood Raven, while he has the at least the good intention in his mind, has the potential to screw everything up because he may have <laughs> accidentally created the worst person in the world as well as oh, Bran yeah. to save the day. Oh yeah, I mean, and the thing about it is, if Euron does bring down the wall. Somehow he blows the horn of Jorman or whatever the the horn of winter, or whatever it's called, um, and he brings down the wall. Like it, it seems very likely that there will be like a a straight line from Blood Raven fucked around and tried to do something to the wall falls down, which allows for the others to invade the realms of men and. Again, while we've said that Blood Raven is very is a very amoral and uh, extremely morally gray character, he's opposed to the others. Like that is extremely clear. So like it's just this like compounding failure of like he's trying to do something, he's trying to find these kids, and like he just wastes some of these kids, and then one of them somehow gets out of this, doesn't get wasted by the whole thing, actually flew, and then just didn't go visit him in the north i guess like right that- yeah we don't know the specifics obviously of what what went down mm-hmm. but from what, like euron says at one point he says that when he was very young one of his brothers had grayscale and euron went up to him and pinched his nose shut and watched him die and then he went down to the ocean and pissed in it and he said he, he waited for the god to come up out of the ocean and punish me and it didn't and I, I've kind of gotten the sense that what, yeah, what, you know, what Bran took away from the having his flying dream was, you know, some connection to a power that he has to deal with. And maybe what Euron took away was, I'm God and I can do anything. Yeah. And that's like, yeah. uh, like the, like the absolute worst conclusion you could reach from what Blood Raven shows you. So that again, this is the kind of thing that might get uh, teased out later as Euron gets gets uh, uh, up to more shenanigans. But yeah, I think that would what a great irony that in trying to save the world, Blood Raven brought it to the brink of doom. I think that's I think that's pretty yeah. perfect. Yeah, I do too. Well, and one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, how how do you think? I mean, you're you know a lot more about the Forsaken uh, stuff than most people do. How do you think that that is going to work? Like, are it, it, I mean, it seems faded that. Bran and Euron are going to have some kind of battle. Is this going to be a, a battle on like the ethereal plane, or is Bran going to like uh, skin change a bunch of animals to help it? You know, and uh, how, I, I to me, I'm very, very interested to see how all of that works. Like how George frames this battle between a ten year old disabled boy and a guy who is riding around with 
muted warlocks tied to the front of his <laughs> ship and bathing in a river of you know bathing in rivers of blood and i'm very excited to see how that interaction comes about because you know you see like the wall falling down and then and uh, bran and blood raven's like well fuck i guess you gotta go fight him now and bran's like who fight what like we just started this a week and a half ago what are you talking about yeah i i think that's i think that could definitely be a hinge in the blood raven brand training is that reveal that that blood raven is specifically training brand to deal with his mistake like you have to clean up what i did and you have to do it now because it's happening and that, yeah, I, I, I definitely think that whatever final confrontation happens with Euron could be on the astral plane. In part because I think that would fit. Like George doesn't really like huge fantasy elements taking over the action. He likes mm. quick bursts of them. So I think that, like, uh, the Forsaken that, that wins the winter chapter that was released, all of the freaky imagery takes place in in drug induced dreams, which is kind of George's way of getting away with it. Like he can do whatever he wants because it's taking place in characters' heads. And mm-hmm. as you say, Bran is Bran is disabled. He's physically across the world from Euron. So if some kind mm-hmm. of confrontation happens, it makes sense. It's going to happen third eye to third eye, and then yeah. George can do literally whatever he wants. There is a in the in A Dance with Dragons. There's this wildling character named Veramir Sixskins, who is a a a, a, a skin changer just like Bran. And he's he's among the wildlings, and he's he was a, a total villain uh, back in the day. As he describes his backstory, basically. He's basically like the kid from Twilight Zone who takes over a whole town with his brain and punishes people like for doing him wrong. Like that, that was basically very mm-hmm. like he took over a wildling village and just enslaved everyone. So he's kind of yeah. like Euron in that regard. He betrayed his mentor and killed his brother. So there's some similarities. And uh, of Veramir, as he dies, he goes, he takes on the, with the, all the second life that a skin ginger can have. He goes into his wolf as his human body dies. And then later, Bran and his wolf kicks that wolf's ass and like takes over the pack. So... I've, mm. I've wondered if maybe like that's what's going to happen. Like Euron is going to try to escape his mortal body and escape into the second life. And, and then Bran is going to come down on, in the astral plane and defeat him there. <laughs> I think that could be could be totally wild. And because th- there is this aspect of Euron. And this is, I think, an aspect of Euron people don't like where he's like a cartoon villain. Like he's a pirate. Oh, yeah. With an eye patch. And he has a ship full of scary mute guys. And like, really? <laughs> but like, if he's Bran's final boss, that kind of makes sense because Bran is a 10-year-old kid. And who's the kind of villain yeah. a 10-year-old kid wants to fight? The evil pirate sorcerer's Dark Lord. Like, he's kind of yeah. oddly perfect if, if Bran is the one he's going to go up against. So I, I think that could work. And I just just now put together like the Peter Pan uh Oh, sure. parallels there for you know like uh peter pan you know has to go into a different realm to uh to you know defeat a, a goofy pirate with you know and, and his goofy pirate gang and everything like that and this is just that version you know but uh you know turned up to 11 and then soaked right. in blood sprinkle some lovecraft <laughs> on there yeah in terms in terms of theories i know you you got some you got some stuff you want to talk about with Bran and Blood Raven. This is the first thing that I've ever uh, written within the uh, the Song of Ice and Fire community, like the first theory that I've ever come up with. Um, and so, you know, if it's terrible, uh, blame Jeff. So, you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so I call it Bran Raven, and uh, basically I'm just going to read the thing I wrote here, and uh, yeah, let's go from there. So... 
in the fantasy world of A Song of Ice and Fire, bloodlines and blood itself convey power. Certain bloodlines grant their members mystical innate abilities, like how members of House Farwind of the Lonely Light can supposedly skin change into whales and other sea creatures. King's blood appears to have special properties that can make one fit to rule or can be used to sacrifice uh, for sacrifice and magic. Royal families tie their divine divine right to rule through ancient lineages, including the Baratheons, who use their status as a bastard offshoot of House Targaryen to establish formal legitimacy following Robert's Rebellion. Melisandre, meanwhile, is famously obsessed with King's blood and its ability to conjure up very powerful magic. But it's not just royal blood that is important. All blood has some power. Blood sacrifice, though frowned upon, uh, blood sacrifices, though frowned upon, are used all across uh, Planetos, from worshippers of the old gods in the far north of Westeros to the uh, Magi, Magi, I, I don't know, of, of Essos and, and the wandering eldritch horror that is Euron Greyjoy. Indeed, the practice of blood magic appears to be foundational to many plot elements of the series. Azor High tempered the blade Lightbringer uh, by plunging it into the heart of his wife. Valyrian spells were used to were, were created with blood magic, and uh, Daenerys's rebirth of dragons is decidedly rooted in the practice too. You get the idea. Bloodlines, King's blood, and blood itself all have power in this world. Based on and based on what we know, it appears that the two most powerful. Uh, the two most powerful bloodlines left are those of Old Valyria and of the First Men in the north of Westeros. Uh, they each have special magical abilities, and it may be that the intertwining of these two bloodlines is the key to saving the world. No, this isn't about the intertwining that Danny and Jon Snow are going to engage in, but about combining the power of Bloodraven with that of Bran Stark to stop the others and eventually rule the realm. Unfortunately, it involves a lot of cannibalism, but we'll get to that in a second. So, the bloodlines of Old Valyria and those of the First Men of Westeros have interbred only twice in the whole long history of Planetos, at least as far as we know. Though that might seem odd, remember that these two bloodlines were typically confined to two vastly different geographic areas, Essos and the north of Westeros, and that both of these bloodlines are nearly extinct. Following the doom of Valyria, the Targaryens are the only extant true bloodline of old Valyria still around, and there are only about three of them left uh, after a dance, of drag uh, a dance with dragons. Likewise, uh, George R. R. Martin has confirmed that most of the blood of the First Men has all but vanished from the world after thousands of years of interbreeding, and only remains strong in a few families in Westeros like the Starks, Karstarks, and Blackwoods. Now, the most prominent character with the combined blood of Old Valeria and the First Men is, of course, Johnny Snow. However, Unlike pretty much everything else in the series, this theory is not focused <laughs> on that sweet emo boy. Instead, it's all about the other man within which these two powerful blood bloodlines meet, and that is Brendan Rivers, a.k.a. Bloodraven. This appears to have imbued him with a confluence of powers and abilities, rarely if ever seen before. From his Targaryen father, Brennan inherited the prophetic, prophetic visions known as dragon dreams and the ability to ride dragons, which appears to be tied to Valyrian blood. From his Blackwood mother, Brennan got the blood of the old gods, which is deeply connected to skin changing the weirwood trees and green sea. He was also born a skin changer, despite the fact that only one in 1,000 children is born a skin changer. 
On top of that, he was born a green seer, even though only one in 1,000 skin changers are also born green seers. Brendan later became a master sorcerer, though it is unknown if and how his magical bloodlines affected his abilities to perform sorcery and other magic. Suffice to say, Brendan won the genetic and magical lotteries, a child of two, uh, a child of the two most magically connected bloodlines left in the world, who is a skin changer, green seer, unconfirmed dragon dreamer, and all-around sorcerer supreme. And the good news is that, in spite of Bloodraven's penchant for uber-utilitarianism, he is an enemy of the others and fights against them for the sake of the world. But there's just two little intertwined problems. First, Brendan is quite literally rooted to a giant weirwood. And second, his end is very fucking nigh one way or the other. You see... Bloodraven's 125 years old, and in order to live to such an advanced age, he had to fully immobilize himself and merge with the roots of the massive weirwood tree that sits atop his cave. The tree's roots have gone through his lower body, and one of the branches shoot through, shoots through Bloodraven's empty eye socket where he lost an eye earlier in life. The tree enhances his powers and extends his life, but also renders Bloodraven stationary. He will never leave that cave except in death. But why does it matter if he can't move? He could just teach Bran for however long is necessarily necessary, and then Bran can return to help fight against the second long night, right? Well, no, not really. You see, just like all of us, Bloodraven's body is faltering due to the inexorable <laughs> passage of time. In A Dance with Dragons, the child of the forest known as Leaf tells Bran that Bloodraven will die soon and that the trees can't sustain him forever. Even sitting on this slightly less grimdark version of the Golden Throne from Warhammer 40k, Bloodraven is dying. And the issue is compounded by the fact that the others will arrive soon enough. If Season 6, Episode 5 of the Game of, Game of Thrones TV show is any indication, they're going to overwhelm Bloodraven's cave as they march to the wall. So, even if Bloodraven had years left to train Bran, the roving army of ice zombies and inability to relocate would render that amount of time moot anyway. If he leaves the tree, he'll die, but if he doesn't leave the tree, he'll be overrun by the White Walkers. Now... George sometimes plays a little fast and loose with the timing of certain events, but it seems highly unlikely that Bloodraven and Bran will have more than a few months to train together during the wind of winds of winter, which just doesn't seem like enough time. Bran is a frightened ten-year-old boy who, until near the end of Book 5, believed that Bloodraven would fix his broken legs and back. Though Bran does agree to begin his training, a few months isn't enough time to learn everything that Bloodraven knows about magic, the past, skin changing, and more. To be sure, Bran is a prodigy and wise beyond his years, but he would seemingly need years of training to approach Bloodraven's power and abilities. To add another problem, there are likely some abilities that Bloodraven has that Bran can't simply learn because they are tied to Targaryen heritage like dragon dreaming and dragon riding. So that's it then. The world is fucked because Bloodraven won't be around long enough to help save it, and he doesn't have enough time to properly train his apprentice. Bran will either be left without a teacher, with his training incomplete, either due to Bloodraven's death or the arrival of the White Walkers. 
It all it also appears that Blood Raven's inherited abilities will pass with him, as it's likely impossible for Blood Raven to have kids, and there's not enough time anyway. And really, who wants to fuck a tree? Remember, though Jon Snow does have the exact same bloodlines, he does not have the other confluence of magical abilities that Blood Raven does. Jon can work into ghosts, but that's about it, and he doesn't appear to have green sight. I mean, it's never been said. We don't know it. Uh, so when I say Bloodraven won the magical lottery, I'm not kidding. If only they had blood transfusions in Westeros, then Bloodraven could simply inject Bran, theoretically giving the apprentice the ability to reach the same level of power as the master. However, all hope is not yet lost because there is one more way to transfer power between individuals on Planetos, and when you think about it, what is cannibalism if not an old-timey blood transfusion? <laughs> That's right. The solution to this seemingly intractable problem is none other than everyone's favorite recurring plot element from A Dance with Dragons, cannibalism. Though consumption of human flesh has been, around, has been a somewhat present concern for the entire series, it ramped up exponentially in books 4 and 5. Though cannibalism is viewed as a savage and inhuman practice, there are those who are forced into the practice as prisoners, while many more are driven to take drastic measures in the, in the face of death and the end of the world. To give a few examples, in A Feast for Crows, Gregor Clegane, Gregor Clegane and other Lannister toadies fed parts of Vargo Hote's body to northern prisoners and Hote himself at Harrenhal, telling the prisoners it was a roast goat. In A Dance with Dragons, Stannis Baratheon's Queensmen execute four Peasbury soldiers who resorted to cannibalism in the face of starvation on their march toward Winterfell. Uh, inside Winterfell, Wyman Manderley apparently had three Freys killed and baked into pies that were served at the wedding feast for Ramsay Bolton and fake Arya Stark. In Marine, thousands of refugees are forced to eat the flesh of the diseased dead in order to hold off starvation during the siege. And uh, I have to mention the rumors that the Skagosi are cannibals who ride unicorns because it's neat. <laughs> you get the idea. Lots and lots of intentional and unintentional human flesh and blood consumption. But now you're thinking to yourself, Luke, this is at best a crackpot theory. You've realized, you've realized that I've mostly been talking about bloodlines and run-of-the-mill cannibalism. You know, standard stuff for a song of ice and fire. There has been no power transfer in these actions, just savagery or survivalism. That, and that's all true, and you're right to think it. But, like any failed attorney worth his salt, I've saved all the best evidence for the end. You see, in addition to these examples of the use of blood magic to gain power, there have been instances of cannibalism to gain power to gain the power of other people in the series, usually with the intent of gaining magical abilities. If you'll take your mind back to A Clash of Kings, when Danny was taking her sweet-ass time wandering through <laughs> Karth, she finally entered the House of the Undying, where she took some drugs and had a really bad trip. We've all been there. She heard a bunch of confusing prophecies and saw some strange shit, only to end up chained in a gloomy chamber with a rotting human heart floating in it. Then, in an attempt to gain control of Danny's dragon, Drogon, the Undying Ones be began eating Danny to drain her life and take her power. 
The undying ones bite at her neck, breast, and one even tries to begin eating her eyeball until Drogon burns them all, saving his mom in the process. Thanks, Drogon. The eye-eating thing was really gross. <laughs> there seems to be distinct power over dragons in the blood of the Targaryens, as Danny also somewhat inadvertently uses blood magic and some of her own blood to give birth to her dragons in A Game of Thrones. Then there's the theory that this all hinges upon Jojen Paste. In Brand 3 of A Dance with Dragon and A Dance with Dragons, Brand is fed a weirwood paste by the children of the forest at the behest of Blood Raven, who says the paste will awaken Brand's heretofore dormant abilities as a green seer. And while that may not seem that weird given everything else, suspicious clues begin to pile up that the paste was more than just some weirwood mush. First, recall that Jojen Reed has Green Dream, the limited form of, of the green sight that Bran and Bloodraven possess. He has moss green eyes, and his dreams come true. They are the reason that Jojen and Mira travel to Bran Stark in the first place, and then the dreams help the group on their arduous journey north to the Three-Eyed Crow's Cave. In an answer Dragons Bran 3, the group finally arrives within the cave, but Jojen becomes more withdrawn and sullen than usual. Even though food and rest strengthened Jojen's body after their horrific journey, Bran notes that his friend became sadder and his eyes were even more haunted. Then Jojen reassures Bran by saying that, that the Stark isn't the one who needs to be afraid of what's in the cave, and the reader is reminded once again that Jojen has seen the date of his death and he will not fight it. Later, while eating the weirwood paste, Bran notices that the substance is filled with dark red veins that look a lot like blood, though Bran writes this off as merely red weirwood sap. After eating the paste, Bran immediately has a vision through the weirwoods before returning and finding his companions on this journey, Jojen and Mira, absent from the cave. And then, while seeing a series of rapid-fire visions, Bran tastes the blood of a man who was slain in a vision as he came to. So it seems that Jojen was fearing his death even more than usual. Jojen then disappears and isn't seen for the rest of Bran 3, the final, the final Bran chapter in Book 5. Bran is then fed a weirwood paste, streaked with dark red lines like veins of blood, and gets suddenly tapped into latent green-seeing abilities, able to see through the weirwoods. Bran then notices that Mira and Jojen are conspicuously absent before having another group of visions where he ends up tasting blood. Now, admittedly, this is all circumstantial evidence, as nothing clearly points directly to Jojen being in paste form. Brand 3 is filled with constant allusions to blood and death and skulls, so maybe these references are all just coincidences, part of the overall motif George is going for in Blood Dragon's cave. But it's not like there's any hard evidence against the theory, and it would fit with the overall theme of Brand's journey north, wherein their only survival is through cannibalism even if Coldhands lies about it. Remember earlier in A Dance with Dragons, Coldhands claims to serve pork to Bran, Mira, Jojen, and Hodor, who are all on the brink of starvation, but the meat is actually from Night's Watch deserters who had been slain. Then Bran experiences the sensation of tasting human flesh while skin changing into summer, similar to Veromir Sixkins in the prologue, which Emmett mentioned earlier. Then Coldhands Elk, collapsed from the stress of the journey and the elk was butchered for sustenance something that upset Bran greatly as he viewed the elk as a friend and had vowed not to eat it earlier in the book god that's so fucking sad and it seems 
oddly convenient that Bran suddenly tapped into his green side abilities after consuming a paste possibly containing the flesh and blood of someone with green dreams. Even if you're skeptical of judging paste as a theory, you've got to admit there's some evidence both within the actual story itself and the repeated cannibalism imagery George uses surrounding Bran's journey north. So, my Bran Raven theory takes this idea one step further to solve the issues with the apparent lack of time to train Bran, and it also gives Bran access to those abilities that Blood Raven has from his Targaryen lineage. If a Jojo paste was used to open Bran's green seeing and wed him to the trees, why couldn't a Blood Raven paste be used to give Bran the old Valyrian affinity for sorcery and, metaphorically speaking, wed him to the dragons? If Bran does this, perhaps he would then be able to skin change into a dragon and control one, which could be used to satisfy a recurring idea that the dragon has three heads, making Bran the supposed third dragon rider. What's more, this theory isn't contingent on Bran intentionally cannibalizing Bloodraven. It could be done without his knowledge, just like Jojen apparently was. Bloodraven would absolutely have Bran unknowingly consume human flesh to awaken his powers. He's the king of the ends justifying the means. So what does it matter if you manipulate a 10-year-old boy into gaining power via cannibalism if it means he can stop the end of the world and preserve the realms of men? That's literally how Bloodraven has lived his entire life. Then again, maybe George will take the story in an even darker direction and have Bran knowingly consume the flesh of his mentor to show that he has embraced his role as the last green, as the new last green seer. Now, yes, it's possible that this is all reading too much into things, and maybe it's just building too much on the Jojen Pace theory. And yes, it's entirely possible that while Blood Raven's combo of Old Valyrian and First Men Blood makes him unique, it doesn't confer any actual powers that would help him above the normal the normal powers that a Green Seer might have. Perhaps Green Seers can skin train dragons regardless of Old Valyrian blood in their veins. Maybe George will just kind of ignore how time works when Bran and Blood Raven are training, a lot like how Luke and Yoda did in the Empire Strikes Back, so the training can take as long as required. But then again, you do have to admit that Bran consuming the body and blood of his master in a sort of transubstantiation would fit the Catholic imagery that George loves so much. I I love this theory, and you did a great job laying it out. And yeah, that, I think that's the great kicker at the end there, is that as much as Blood Raven is obviously influenced heavily by Norse imagery, maybe even some Greek imagery, or just the archetypes George loves in his own work, that George, like uh, I think like a lot of great artists of his generation, is always struggling back towards the, the, the kind of religious imagery with which he was raised. And George R. R. Martin is a lapsed Catholic, and he always Ooh. brings back those, those ideas. Again, you can see it with Beric Dondarrion and his constant resurrections. You can see it with Bran spending three days as summer, hint, 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 while he's beneath Winterfell <laughs> before emerging and being reborn. And yeah, what what uh, what more perfect way to kind of intersperse that those, uh, one of those core sacred ideals into his genre fiction than with yeah, literally consuming the the body and blood of your master? I think that's perfect because Blood Raven is in is in so many ways kind of the ultimate mentor, like just more powerful mm-hmm. and aware than all of the other mentor characters that the other uh, the other main characters get. And Bran, I, I I sometimes feel like Bran is going through because he's a kid. 
like the most literal version of the journey that all the other ones are going through. Like mm-hmm. other characters have a metaphorical fall from grace. Bran literally mm-hmm. falls. He gets the, you know, yeah. he's literally pushed yeah. from a window. And, you know, Jon Snow metaphorically replaces his mentor Corrin Halfhand because he kills him and has to take on, you know, mm-hmm. his mission. And Bran might literally replace his mentor by devouring mm-hmm. his, his, uh, his flesh. And yeah, yeah, I love what you're saying about how that well that fits Blood Raven's character because he's been willing to sacrifice anything for the higher cause. And the, what a perfect mm-hmm. ending for his character when it's like I have nothing left to sacrifice but myself. That's it's that's, yeah. that's the last piece I have to get. The last move I have to play as the chess master is to to kick me the king over and and and, <laughs> yeah. and give it up to Bran. And that's it fits with him. But there's uh, you know there's you'd mentioned earlier that he might have. Uh, he might have just moved on to a, a different way of looking at things when he became the three-eyed crow. And yeah. maybe this is maybe this is something that Blood Raven, the politician, would never do: is sacrifice himself and his own power and kind of yeah. kind of give way. And I think that I think that's a that's a great idea. And like you're saying, so consistent with when you go back to dance, especially, and just everyone's eating everyone in a dance with dragons. Yeah. It's like it's just a constant thing. And this this would be just the the cherry on top of that. Yeah, I always blanch at it when I see it because. I know why George is doing it, and I completely understand it. And it does, it adds to the palpable dread of like, these people are literally starving. They are literally yep. going to die. And so it, it, it completely makes sense. And I completely understand why a person would do it to survive. But at the same time, I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, even with the elk, which isn't a human, yeah. but but Bran feels a connection to it, like he's eating a friend. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what's that like when it's when it's it's literally your friends? And that's the like yeah, we we're you're talking about Azora High and the connections of the blood sacrifice to that. I think you know George is a uh, wants to poke at the idea of how much how much sacrifice for your hero is is really worth it, and how much. Yeah. How much? How much? Yeah, literally, literally eating people because you're more important because you're because you're the main yeah. one, and that's yeah, it's just I, such a skin crawling idea. But it fits like even Veramir, like Veramir eats the heart of his mentor. Like that's that's oh, right geez, on right on point yeah. with that. And Bran to me is is very poignant in this regard because mm-hmm. you're it's not Jon Snow because Jon is an adult or close to an adult. Like he's. Uh, you know, he's a man grown. He is, he's, you know, old enough to have sex with, you know, whoever he wants and, and he's killed people and everything like that. And he's not like, you know, Luke Skywalker, who though Luke Skywalker is a giant rube, he's still like a 20, 22 year old man when he is training on Dagobah. And like all, so many of these, like, trainings that we see in pop culture and in 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 myths and things like that are you know 20 or 30 something uh year old people undertaking this journey and i mean i realized that the george wanted to have the five-year gap and everything and and here i think is a very very interesting way you get with this because now brand brand has to learn like all of this stuff and it is just so heartbreaking to see like a to see like a 10 year old like 10 year olds are still like young enough where they probably i mean not all of them but most 10 year olds have never done anything wrong like never intended it i mean you know all kids are are little assholes but sure like, they've been, they've been shitty i, I have not- a kid 
Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. It's different. It's different. But yeah, most ten year olds, you know, have never been like, you know, I, I'm going to go stab this kid, or <laughs> I'm going to go, you know, like something yeah. like that. And so you're seeing the like literal fall from grace in the form of like the fall from innocence and the scales falling from Bran's eyes is he just has to keep learning these awful truths that no one should have to learn until they're much old. Like we shouldn't have to learn them until we're like 30, you know? So there's no way that like a 10 year old should. And like, to me, that's just, it's so tragic. And like to be able to fully deconstruct the, um, the hero's journey that that he is obviously riding with Bran because this is not the hero's journey where Jesus Christ knew that he was going knew when he came into the world or was implied to have known that he was going to be crucified um or learn you know learn that when he was 18 or or you know like I said Luke Skywalker when he's 20 or whatever this is a 10 year old kid having everything put on his shoulders and by the way kid I'm the one that trained the guy who just knocked down the wall and <laughs> yep. put everyone that you've ever loved in mortal, more mortal peril than they normally are in. One of the things I like about the, the Quentin Martell chapters in A Dance with Dragons is George R. R. Martin hammering this idea that you really probably should just like stay home and find someone <laughs> nice and like have some pets and take care of your kids and this this insane idea that we're all supposed to go halfway around the world probably causes more damage than it solves. And <laughs> and I think, you know, there's that I think there's that that of course that Vietnam angle in George's generational backstory that I yeah. think inspires a lot of that. Like we were told we were gonna go halfway around the f- the world for freedom and look what happened. So stop trying yeah. to do that. And I think there's yeah, there's that poignancy that Bran doesn't really fully understand what he's losing and what he's being asked to do. And the cost everyone else is going to have to bear. There's that that's that chilling line from Jojen that he is not the one who needs to be afraid. That he says that about Bran. It's just like ev- everyone he's, else around yeah. him needs to be afraid, not him. He's yeah, he needs to be afraid of the like uh, of the others and of you know their own mortality, but also needs to be afraid of what this is going to do to him. Like yep, giving someone the power of a god fucks them up like it's it has to it happened to yeah. blood raven that's what he said he says yeah. bran that like there was a brother i loved and a brother i hated and a woman i desired and they're all gone and that was yeah. everything to him that was his whole life you get the sense that he thought that's why he was all he was doing it that's what it was all worth and now it's like they're they're ghosts that i remember and i'm mm-hmm. onto a completely different task and i'm wondering what it was for and you gotta think like bran's gonna be like i remember rickon I remember yeah. old Nan and Hodor and Jojen and Mira, yeah. and now they're they've been gone for decades, and no one else yeah. remembers them except me, and they weren't important. It's like that, that like fragile little. When you see like, oh, there's the man Brynden Rivers inside the tree, immortal god. Mm-hmm. Like there's the human that he used to be, and there's barely like with Beric Dondarrion when he says, "I don't even remember who I was before I was this sorcerer man who fights the man." Like I don't mm-hmm. remember who I was supposed to be, and there's there's something you realize, yeah. but like, oh, the what it means to become empowered and become like a god it means not being a person anymore and that's that's just awful so we wanted to wrap up this episode with a couple of a couple of questions uh we got from some of our great patrons uh lord micah asks 
Would Bloodraven be willing to give up his Valyrian steel blade to Mira? If so, how would he go about training her to use it? Would Cold Hands be a good sword mentor for that? So yes, there, there is the Valyrian steel blade dark sister that we mentioned earlier that Bloodraven kept with him, even though he was mainly known for his skills as an archer. And it was actually confirmed when one of our friends, Ashaya from the History of Westeros podcast, asked George R. R. Martin, did Bloodraven take dark sister with him when he went to the wall? And George... Rare, being less cryptic than usual, just straight up said, yes, Bloodraven took that sword. And given the importance wow. of Valyrian steel swords, it does seem possible that this will come into play. Uh, we were talking about, you know, obviously Jojen, the likelihood that he's he's paced. Um, Hodor, yeah. obviously, I think his fate is, is basically confirmed to be similar to that of the show, maybe not in the same place or same exact circumstances, but yeah. <laughs> Hodor will also mean hold the door. Bloodraven, I, I love your theory, and even if it's not true, Bloodraven himself is very close to death. But did you, yeah. do you think Mira is the one companion of Bran that survives in the show? So do you think in the books, too, she yeah. might survive and be around to take up this sword? Do you think that's she might pull through? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think with Mira, like, if she's not there to come down like a more hardened warrior prepared for these things that they have to face... I don't understand what her um uh what her her literary purpose or impact in the story really is Agreed. except for being someone that has Bran has a crush on and <laughs> while George does have some issues with certain things with writing women he's not really into just like yep here's this woman and the only reason that she exists is because so and so has yeah, a crush on her. Like even you know, like Shay had more character, much more characterization than just that. Agreed. Um. So yeah, I think he's at. I mean, if he's got it, if he's got dark, if he's got dark sister, there's Chekhov's gun, right? You don't right. put a gun he on the. Those you don't put a gun on the wall, and, and unless you want to use it, um, training her to use it, I think it would have to be cold hands or. Um, perhaps someone at the, well, I don't know if the Night's Watch will still be there when they sure. get back. Probably if anyone not, survives, right. Yeah, someone in the north or something like that. But uh, as I recall, Mira is pretty good with the sword, right? Or is she good she's with the like spear, spear and not she's great got a spear with and net is what they use because they're, cause uh, they're, ho yeah, they're hobbits yeah, yeah, yeah. down in the neck. That's, um, that's right, that's right. She would need training with a sword, and that's an awesome sword. So I don't see why it would just like why George would just have Blood Raven die and the cave be overrun by the others, or however it happens, and just leave the sword on the wall. Like Blood Raven's like, ah, oh, well, I got my sword because <laughs> he's, I mean, he's very full of himself, but keeping a sword. As he dies, not that when kind it could of be used himself. to protect yeah. Bran, like even if he did not give a shit about Mira, like in any way, shape, or form, he would probably at least be like, she could use it to protect Bran. So Off yeah, take the sword. Yeah, yeah. I agree with what you said that there doesn't seem to be a clear purpose for Mira otherwise, because I don't think she's going to be paced because she's never shown to. I mean, I understand she's the yeah. same powers as Jojen, but she doesn't seem to have. Any, she's no, never shown any inclination for magical power. She's much more the the kind of like grounded down to earth member of that family mm -hmm. where she's into like the hunting and the, the, the watching from the trees and very much more practical like surveillance mm -hmm. skills. That's what she's really good for, which would be very useful for getting brand back home. And yeah. I think uh, makes sense for her picking up the sword. There's even that scene 
at the end of Clash of Kings when they're coming out of the crypt and they're all taking swords from the Stark tomb. So it's like that's that's mm. a setup for them. Like, you know, we're going to emerge from the cave with swords. So they might do yeah. that. Might, ha- might have Mira do that again. I wanted to combine a couple questions together here because they, they touch on the same topic from Sir Kel. They ask, do you think it's possible Blood Raven has been meddling at all in current affairs outside of trying to recruit magical children? And Lord Travis asks, Blood Raven seems so linked to the old gods, to Northern Customs, and to Ice, the Starks, their abilities. What do you think he'll teach Bran about dragons, fire, Targaryen prophecy, etc.? Do you think Blood Raven will try to communicate with Daenerys at some point? Will he caution Bran about the threat from the East? So the, kind of putting those together, questions together in terms of thinking what Blood Raven's plans uh, on the larger world might be. You, you mentioned dragons earlier, that Bran might be involved in, in warging with dragons. I can see ways that he wouldn't like reasons like that it's just too far or it doesn't sure. kind of fit into the plot the way that George wanted to. But I don't – it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to make – the master a targaryen yeah right. and not tie it to the dragons and i mean like i i, I like i like my my theory my my primary theory but there is i think jojen says that the greatest green seers can skin change into any creature so it may be that they can uh, that they can already do that and that blood raven could just impart some wisdom about like calming or you know dealing with a dragon because they are obviously so different from any other creature you know obviously so different from almost any other creature in the world um so yeah i i mean i definitely think that he that that Bran will be involved with dragons in some way. I, I kind of wonder, like if you know, uh, when Victorian blows the horn and then dies because he's a moron. Um, <laughs> yep, yep. Like, could Bran? Could Bran sort of if, or once he defeats Euron, could he sort of change, like enter the dragon's sure. mind and you know take it away from that master so i can see that like yeah he does that with varamir basically he takes over the wolf pack yeah uh, so that that makes perfect sense that to me is is something like that as for the stuff with uh daenerys i'm very interested to see if that comes up i don't know that he will talk or communicate with daenerys directly especially because his powers in the east seem to be I don't I don't want to say that they're non-existent but they are definitely not as not as powerful as they are in Westeros and I'm fairly sure that probably has to do with uh, the fact that the weirwoods only grow in Westeros um or maybe there are some that don't but that uh you know that the, he he taps through the weirwood net or whatever and he can see all of that stuff in the east is a little more clouded or something I don't really know how he would communicate with Daenerys, but I would, if it happens, I'd be very interested in it to see like what Daenerys would think of this. Like, she'd be like, you know, would she be like, oh, you know, uh, uh, you know, one of my kin or would she be like, I'm not going to listen to this tree asshole. I don't give a <laughs> shit. I, br- I brought dragons back into the world and I'd be like, yeah, I, I get that. Like, yeah, <laughs> I-, I feel I feel that. <laughs> I'm with you that I'm curious to see where this develops because Blood Raven for having his eyes everywhere, his interest in sorcerer's power, the Targaryen backstory, he wants to save the world. You'd think the existence of a Targaryen woman who's brought dragons back would be of interest to him. And yeah. 
even if he didn't, even if he doesn't have magical presence over in Essos, I feel like that's it's just been like the dragons seem to have had this ripple effect on magic that everyone who's connected to magic seems semi aware of, or at least picking up on the the frequencies of it. So I figure he's mm-hmm. he's he's probably got to know by now or will eventually. Oh yeah. There are theories that um that like uh, that Shiara Sea Star is involved, or that Quaith is Shiara Sea Star, and they're working <laughs> together to recruit Daenerys, which feel, feels a little on the nose to me. I don't think that's really what. I mean, and they answer to Quaith, I can appreciate, no. but I don't think that's really what's going on yeah. there. I think, um, I think it's, uh, I think like the brand working a dragon thing, I think is a strong possible connection. I also think it might just develop, yeah, that that uh, that as we see somewhat in the show, that the kind of more northern side forms a temporary alliance with Daenerys and her dragons, and maybe yeah. Bran is is part of that, or Blood Raven encourages him to be a part of that, even though it doesn't, you know, ultimately eventually work out. Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, to put it to, to put it lightly. So I think that's gonna wrap us up for a big Blood Raven episode. Thanks so much again for coming on, Luke. I think this we had a, a blast talking about this. I knew we were gonna have fun with this particular character. So thank you so much, and tell the people where they, where they can find all your stuff. Well, uh, thank you for having me on. This is awesome, and uh, yeah, I love Blood Raven, and <laughs> just glad to uh, come on and talk about it. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Luke is Amazing. Uh, you can find my podcast uh called we're not so different it's a medieval history podcast that i do with uh dr eleanor yanega um where we go back and look at uh medieval history try to correct misconceptions about things that that we that that we now commonly believe about the past and you know try to to tie in the fact that that we're really not that different from the people in the past in good and bad ways you know obviously we have better technology and medicine and things like that but there are a lot of fundamental things that that are not that are not that different and and, um, and also can kind of give you heart in some things you know you could be like yeah you know people have overcome things and they've done things like this before and then at other times you're like man we've really treated people shitty for a really really long time like we've treated women shitty for so long. <laughs> you're just like Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, it's called We're Not So Different. You can find it on Twitter at uh, WNSD Pod, or uh, you can find it where you listen to podcasts. Um, I uh, also have another show called uh, People's History of the Old Republic, which was a Star Wars podcast. It's on uh, extended hiatus now for the time being, but uh, yeah, there are like 80 episodes of that if you just can't get enough of my voice um and uh yeah i mean like literally if you want to if, if that whole brand raven thing was really up your alley uh you know i've got so much of that shit on star wars that you not believe uh yeah so but that's where you can find me uh people's history of the republic is at Fleetor pod on twitter if you want to check it out uh other than that yeah, that's what I got. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I love the show. I love everything that you guys do. And I'm going to beat you to the punch and plug the Patreon. Uh, if you haven't, <laughs> you guys should subscribe. Patreon episodes are great. The Patreon Slack is great. I don't remember all of the, the myriad tiers that there are to it. But, uh, but seriously, it's just great. And you guys should do it. I wanted to say thank you, and I also wanted to be the first one to congratulate you on the show for being married. Congratulations once again. Well, thanks. To you, to you and Chloe. And uh, Jeff, 
please come back safe um, because you know I just need to uh, to to hear your hot takes about Jamie for uh, a, st- a storm of swords. I'm looking so. forward to that too. Well, thank you so much for for the congratulations, Luke. Thank you so no much. Problem. That means a lot. And um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, check out uh, both both of Luke's podcasts and check out at uh, at Luke is amazing. Definitely a, a great follow on Twitter. And uh, as always, folks, if you want to rate and review us on uh, on iTunes, on Spotify, leave us a, a comment. We always appreciate it. As Luke said, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, uh, where you can uh, rewards include uh, exclusive episodes every month and access to the Nata Slack. You can find us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, folks. We'll see you next week.